Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to episode 20 of Dad and Daughter Do Death. Hello, Phoebe. How are you this evening? Hi, Dad. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's um, episode 20. Episode 20, I know. Yeah. 20 weeks in. That's almost half a year. (laughs) It's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Still here? here hopefully we've still got a listener or two fingers well this week dad we have passed a thousand downloads of our little podcast oh, so wow. okay that's exciting isn't it overall 20 of them so yeah all right don't look at the figures too much, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> i think a thousand is a milestone i think it is no you're definitely right yeah because yeah. i don't think it's just mum and rich and granny downloading them <laughs> no. hundreds of times so uh, that means we've got more than <laughs> More than the few listeners you know of. So uh, thanks to everyone really who's good. been tuning in and listening. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's good to know that uh, people are finding us entertaining mm. in some small way. <laughs> or using us to drift off to sleep. Yes. With our, with our tales of true crime from Europe. Yeah, any news in the world of true crime this week, Phoebe? Well, today there was the news that... Gary Allen has been convicted of the murder of Samantha Class back in 1997 in Hull, local okay. murder to me. Okay. And then Elena Graklova in Rotherham in 2008, I believe it was. Um, so 21 years apart. And today he's been found guilty of both of the murders. I think pushing police to really reopen some cold cases from the area as well. So it'd be interesting to see if anything else comes up from that. But yeah, um, yeah interesting that he had such a massive gap between offences, seemingly. Well, do you think there could be some others? I think that's what the police are thinking. Yeah. That there's some potential cold cases because he managed to get away. Well, 2008 was 13 years ago, so he um, yeah. managed to <laughs> evade, you know, getting caught for that for quite a long time. So, and I think he did actually go on trial for Samantha Class's murder originally, um, but walked free from it. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens next. Maybe we should do um, Samantha Class as a a local murder. Yeah. Maybe find out the story behind that so do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about peter london and uh, peter london part one yeah uh, we discussed some news that had come out a couple of days before that around um a lady who had been found dead in greece um, and her husband had said that some robbers had broken in and tied him and her up yeah. um, and then she'd been strangled the dog had been killed the baby was fine, he'd been fine, and they'd fled. Yep. And we aired our skepticism <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at that, that story, story. at yeah. that time. Um, and then it has come out um, at today that he actually killed her, as we did potentially allude to, um, yep. that she threatened to leave him and that he strangled her. Um, and told the story so that he's he could keep custody of his daughter, basically. And apparently it was some data from her smartwatch that gave him away because oh, it, really? she was still alive at a point when he'd said that she was dead. Um, and if the story that he told had happened, then she would have been dead. But the, the watch said that she was still alive. So, wow. um, yes. Okay, bit of biometric evidence there. I know. Oh, so, um, incredible. Yeah, it's always the spouse, and um, quite often, they, and uh, especially um, when one's dead like, and the other one's hardly touched. Mm, yeah. yeah, and the baby's <laughs> fine too, and it's always technology that gives people away. It seems so. to be, isn't it? Yeah, mobile phones tracking you. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, biometric this information case, uh, from a smartwatch. A smartwatch, yeah. There was a story that uh, caught my eye just yesterday um, in the news about a woman who was convicted of killing her husband by pouring boiling water mixed with sugar over him. That happened in July last year, July 2020. That must have been unbelievably Uh, painful. Yeah, yeah. So she's 59 and he was 81. So a bit of an age difference there. 
she was also his carer. I think they had a few rows and there was a particular dispute that she just lost it with him. Took a bucket from the garden, boiled up water in a kettle and mixed it with sugar and, uh, yeah, poured it over him. That's pretty premeditated, isn't it? That's not just uh, chucking a cup of water, no. boiling water and sugar on him. That's going and boiling oh, the yeah, kettle yeah, yeah. and waiting for that to boil and get in a bucket. And yeah. That's yeah. quite it, yeah. Uh, I think the, the case against her was that, yeah, she, it was it was a deliberate and considered attack. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Ouch, a poor man. She's going to be sentenced on the 9th of July, but uh, mm. not entirely sure what she'll get. So, uh. No. So this week, Phoebe, I'm going to tell you a story, okay. which also is quite local to places that you all know. Okay. Uh, and What's in that? its time, which I vaguely remember, it was a huge story. Okay. Uh, and I was inspired to do this because when I was... Uh, driving down the motorway the other day when I came off at uh, junction three of the M5 and I pulled up behind a coach. Okay. And the coach belonged to the company that was involved in this particular sequence of events. Oh. So I will uh, reveal all as we go along. Okay. Okay. So this is the story of Donald Nielsen who was okay. also known as the Black Panther. Not to be confused with Dennis Nilsson, which is spelt slightly differently, which is quite okay. a different story. Not to be confused with the Marvel superhero, the Black Panther. Donald was born on the 1st of August, 1936, and his name at birth was actually Donald Nappy. Oh, okay. Uh, well, there you go. N A W P E Y. He was born in Bradford, in mm-hmm. fact, which is where he lived for, well, most of his life. Yeah, so Donald Nappy was born in Bradford. Uh, his mother died when he was 10 with cancer. Okay. So that was in the, in the mid 40s, 46, 47. And at the age of 11, he was caught shoplifting and getting into sorts of bits of trouble, but he was always let off with a sort of a caution when uh when he finished school which i think he finished quite early he joined the army he was in the king's own yorkshire light infantry where he served for a few years and at the age of 18 he actually married irene tate who was 20 years old at the time and that was in 1955 and she persuaded him irene persuaded him to leave the army okay i'm not entirely sure what he did straight away but they had a daughter born in 1960, Catherine. Uh, and when Catherine was four, he changed the family name from Nappy to Nielsen because he didn't want her to be ridiculed and bullied and made fun of at school in the same way that he had been because of his name. That's fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> hey, so, we've, we've all had People that. People with ridiculous surnames, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So. I bet he missed it afterwards, though. <laughs> Maybe he did. <laughs> um, th- there are a couple of stories about how he got the name Nielsen or why he chose it. One of them was something to do with um, it was the name on an ice cream van that they used to visit when buying ice cream for okay. for Catherine. But another theory is that when he bought a taxi company, which he did, shortly after all this, uh, the name of the man that he bought it off was Nielsen. So uh, uh, he adopted that name. So not entirely sure which is true, but one way or another. He bought a taxi company <laughs> and changed his name to Nielsen. Now, this taxi company wasn't successful. He, he okay. made the best job of it he could, but he just couldn't get it to work. So he started turning to petty crime. Um. He did a lot of house burglaries, and seemingly he did these without detection. And he carried out about 400 of these. That's a lot of robberies. Yes, a lot. Yeah. Um, People knew that uh, these burglaries were happening, and he had several nicknames that they called him uh, when they were trying to find him, the Phantom and... Handy Andy, 
for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) But he managed to evade detection and capture. He would change his uh, MO, his modus operandi, quite frequently. So he would do the same thing for a while and then change it. So, for example, he went through a phase where he would always steal a radio from the house and leave it nearby. And so police said, oh, it's the same as... uh, it's the, it's the same thing we're seeing here as we saw in that other robbery. And, and, and then after a little while, he would stop doing that and maybe do something else instead. Okay. So, his, so he uh, his signature, as it were, kept changing. And one way or another, he managed to uh, to evade capture. But the problem with house burglaries is that they didn't really provide much in the way no. they, <laughs> they no. were quite slow in in coming up with any sort of meaningful money and stuff and if he was mm. making if, if he was now a career criminal to to make a success of it <laughs> which seems an odd way of putting it but uh he'd have to up his game a bit yeah <laughs> now one of the houses that he burgled he actually stole a gun or some guns and an, an ammunition from a house in Cheshire. So living in Bradford, but sort of he's spreading his uh, area quite a bit. It's quite a long way from Bradford to Cheshire. Yeah, it is. Well, he gets around, as, as, you'll, as you'll see. What he started doing then was robbing small village post offices. Okay. And so he'd go in, holding up people at gunpoint. He'd always have like a black balaclava over his head and be dressed all in black. And between 1971 and 1974, he actually successfully robbed 18 small post offices, again, without being captured. But as more and more postmasters sort of became aware that there was someone going around robbing, they became more prepared. And as a result, some of his encounters became more violent uh, as, as his postmasters started protecting themselves. On one occasion, he broke into a post office at night. He went into the bedroom of the postmaster and his wife, who were in bed, who obviously woke up, saw him standing there with a shotgun, and the postmaster actually grabbed the gun and it pointed upwards. One went another, trigger went off, shotgun into the ceiling, plaster everywhere, Mm-mm. and uh, Donald Nielsen ran off. Oh, no. no. Uh, but again, because he was... Um, robbing small village post offices, there wasn't much there. Yes, no, their security yeah. was low. They didn't have much in the way of security in these little shops. I mean, you can no imagine CCTV. Sort of where, we're not in the early 70s, certainly not, no. But their security provision yeah. was pretty small as well. But so was the amount that he was likely to get away with. So, again, yeah. he wasn't in the big time with any of no. this. In 1974, he committed his first murders. First of all, in February, while he was robbing a a sub-post office in Harrogate, he killed Donald Skepper. Then in September, he killed Derek Astin in a place called Baxenden, which is sort of northeast or east of Manchester. It's in that sort of area. Uh, Okay. Yeah. And in November 1974, he killed Sidney Greyland in Langley, West Midlands, which is yeah. not far from here. It's, um, it's sort of West Bromwich, yeah. Smethwick sort of area. Okay. So, uh, yeah, not very far away at all. Now, in actual fact, Sidney was the husband of the actual postmistress, who herself was quite brutally beaten up but she survived sorry so was he just killing them to get the money from the post offices basically yeah i think yeah he was just breaking in i think he was being confronted um and one way and another as as sort of mentioned earlier these robberies started to become more and more violent as people were more confrontational to him so he just let rip with his shotgun. It's quite a tra- trek from uh, Bradford to West Bromwich. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he is getting around. And where really he's actually is. living, I presume yeah. he's still living in Bradford. His wife and daughter are still there, but he's going all around the country uh, 
was the north northwest and the west midlands he was spending a lot of money on petrol it was cheap but, in 1975. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so you could save yourself a lot of money if he stayed local to do these crimes. <laughs> so by the end of 1974, he'd actually killed three people. And as a result of one of those killings, uh, where he killed Derek Astin, his wife, Marion, described him as a panther for the speed that he managed to get away. And because he was all dressed in black... A TV reporter that was sort of on the scene, reporter um, interviewing her and everything, ended her her piece to camera by saying, "So where is this Black Panther?" And that sort of name stuck. Right. Then on he became known as the Black Panther. Okay. Now the most famous crime that uh, he'll be known for, and this is where it ties up with the coach that I pulled up behind (laughs) the other day. was the kidnap and, I shall say, death for now, of Leslie Whittle. Okay. Now, Leslie Whittle was a 17-year-old in 1975. She was actually born in 1957. And she was one of the heirs to the Whittle Coach Company. Ah, okay. Yeah. I know them. They've got, like, the the W's like a tick. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. it's, like, blue and yellow. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Moment. Yeah. And I'll put some pictures of a modern coach right. together with an old one because they've been around for years and decades. I'm sure it was Whittle that coming. used to do um, like our school trips and like to the um, we used to go swimming. Yeah, was it was a coach that did that? Yeah, it will be. Well, the Whittle family lived in Highley, okay, which go. is just the other side of the river from Alverley, mm-hmm. which is somewhere you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and at the time, she was at college at Wolfram College in Wolverhampton. Ah, there you go. So, uh, again, a local, a local yeah. story again. Yeah. Now, George Whittle uh, died in 1970, and he was her father. And she had a brother called Ronald. Now, originally, George was married to someone called Selina, who I think he divorced. She's described as estranged, but let's say divorced. (laughs) Um, And he went on to marry or at least be with, because this person is described as his mistress, someone called Dorothy. And Dorothy were Ronald, who was the elder, and Leslie's mother. Right. When George died in 1970, he left nothing in his will to Selina. Right, okay. But he'd left three houses and £70,000 in cash to Dorothy. He'd left £107,000 in cash to Ronald and £82,000 to Leslie. Right, okay. Now, in those days, that was a, a lot, lot of money. money. Now, it was fairly high profile because big, big sort of business. And this dispute actually made the papers. Okay. found out. And it was all being discussed in the news and things and reports about the dispute in the in the early 70s, about 1972, which is when Donald Nielsen read about it. Okay. And he thought that perhaps this would be a target to make some money. Okay. It took him three years to plan this. Oh, my God. But on the 14th of January, 1975, he actually broke into the Whittle house in Highley, where he was expecting to find and kidnap Dorothy. Right. But he didn't. He actually found Leslie downstairs. Okay. He was in a dressing gown and slippers, and that was it. Uh, Dorothy apparently was asleep Upstairs, she'd taken some sleeping tablets and gone to bed. Okay. Leslie was up for some reason. Ronald didn't live there. He lives he lives somewhere else. Not can't have been far away, as we'll find out in a minute, but uh, he wasn't in the house. So he um he grabbed Leslie after cutting the phone wires, <laughs> uh unbreaking into the house. He grabbed Leslie, tied her up gagged okay. her, blindfolded her, and he left a pre, pre-prepared pre ransom note. Okay. Which he actually left 
by way of a dymo tape. Do you oh, know wow, what okay. I mean by a dymo tape? Was... Is that the thing where you like click the letters? Yeah, into? yeah. It was a great. I, I used to God, that would have taken you forever. Machine. Apparently, this note was six feet long. Oh my God. <laughs> Can you imagine how long that would have taken three years to write that note out? Yep. So <laughs> he actually left it and it, it was left in the in the living room. Okay. So off he went into the night. Dorothy was fast asleep. He got Leslie gagged in the back of his car and he drove from Highley all the way to Kidsgrove. Okay. Now, Kidsgrove is north of Stoke-on-Trent. So it's quite quite a long way. way. It's a heck of a long way. Yeah. Where he took her to was somewhere that he had also previously prepared, part of this preparation, I guess, which was to Bathpool Park which, as I say, is on the outskirts of Kids Grove, which in turn has got a reservoir in the middle of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, and if you look at maps of it, it's a very square, a very oblong, very engineered-looking place. Right, okay. And it's right next door to a railway line that runs runs past. Now, this reservoir had various drainage inspection shafts. Right, okay. And he'd prepared one of these shafts. There, there were manhole covers, which were triangular in shape, that okay. lifted up. And then there was a circular circular shaft that went down. And he'd prepared one of these to hold his victim, which originally was going to be Dorothy, but of course was now Leslie. So that's where we're taking her. Now, the next morning, Dorothy woke up. Leslie wasn't in the house. Didn't know where she was. Tried to ring Ronald, couldn't use the phone because the wires were being cut. So she yeah. drove to wherever Ronald was and brought him back to the house. And that's when they found the Dymo tape okay. message in the living room. The message said that he wanted £50,000 okay. in used notes to wait for a phone call at a particular phone box at the Swan Shopping Centre in Kidderminster. Okay. And under no circumstances to contact the police. Hmm. Okay. So when they found this, the first thing that Ronald did... Call the police. Was call the police. (laughs) You would, wouldn't you? Like, if someone's stolen someone in your family, you're not going to not call the police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know if it's because they're a high-profile family or um, whether it was... Felt, felt that because she was still a minor, I suppose, at the age of 17, yeah. it was it was a serious incident. There were police forces from Shropshire, Staffordshire, West Midlands and Scotland Yard oh, wow. involved. Yeah, At the height of the investigation, there were uh, over 250 police involved in looking for her. Oh, my goodness. That's yeah. a lot of people. It was a lot of people, yeah. Now, this is where things started to go wrong. Well, right. it hadn't gone wrong enough already. I mean, wrong for who? <laughs> Wronger well, for who? Well, <laughs> wrong for everybody, really, I think we'll find. It okay. didn't go well for anybody from this point. <laughs> mm. With all this activity, although the, the instruction was not to call the police, it became pretty obvious that something was going on. And one way or another, the story was broken. And, and it was broadcast that night. It was a small hours of 14th of January that she was kidnapped. And it was that evening where the story was broken on the news. Right, okay. So, of course, there was no phone call at the Swan Shopping Centre that night. Late on the evening of the 16th of January, so two days later, there was a phone call. I'm not sure who the phone call was to. Okay. (laughs) Whether it was to the police or whether it was to the Whittles, but as he had already cut the phone line, I'm not entirely sure how, maybe that it mended, I don't know. But one way and another, there was a phone call on the night of the 16th of January, late at night, quarter to 12. Okay. The night of the 16th of January. And it was a taped recording of Leslie saying that she was okay to go to Kids Grove to retrieve a second message that was hidden behind a backboard inside another telephone box. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, so the, the instruction was to go to this particular telephone box in Kids Grove, which, remember, is an awful long way from Highley, yeah. um, north of Stoke and Trent, in the middle of the night, 
to retrieve this other message and that would give him further instructions. So, yeah, it was verified. The family agreed that that was Leslie's, Leslie's voice. It was agreed that Ronald would go. Okay. But the police wanted some sort of protection around mm-hmm. him and to monitor him. And it took two hours to get him sort of monitored and get all the monitoring, surveillance and everything in place so that if he did get into trouble, he'd be able to do something. I'm not entirely sure what it was. And someone would be with him really quickly. Yeah, okay. So, so it took two hours to organise this. Um, and it was uh, 1.30 in the morning on the 17th of January. He left Bridge North Police Station, because that's okay. just up the road from Highland, yeah. with a suitcase with this £50,000 in it. Okay. Now, he didn't know Kids Grove at all, uh, and he got lost when he, when he got there and couldn't oh, find no. the phone box. He eventually found it. He spent 30 minutes trying to find this message, and eventually he found it, and it said... Go to the top of the lane and turn into no entry. Go to the wall and flash lights. Look for torchlight. Run to torch. Further instructions on torch. My God. (laughs) Yeah. Like a film. It is. Well, yeah. (laughs) It is. Yeah. And bear in mind, this is January. So it's going to be pretty dark cold and, cold and dark. Yeah, yeah. So he got to Bathwell Park. He was, you know, it was late. He tur- mm-hmm. Ronald turned into the no entry sign as instructed. But because it was so dark, he couldn't see the wall that was referred to. Apparently it was very okay. low and it ran along the side of where the railway line is. Right. So as a result, he ended up driving right to the end of the lane Okay. Uh, where he stopped, he flashed his lights, he got out of the car, but there was nothing. No flashing torch, oh. nothing. So eventually Ronald left the park, met up again with the police where they'd arranged to rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, the Staffordshire police were given the blame after it was reported that a patrol car was seen in the area. Right, although okay. They, although they strongly deny that they, there was any patrol cars in the area. And also a courting couple had been in a car <laughs> near where the <laughs> ransom was supposed to have been left. <laughs> so a couple of things had gone wrong there. And in the daylight, they looked around there and couldn't find any clues as to where they should have, where he should have been or anything right, like that. Right, okay. Now, it turns so frustrating. Out, oh, I know. It, it, so he was late to the, yeah. to the place to pick up the next... And then he couldn't message. find where he was. He couldn't find where he'd oh. gone to the wrong place. There's confusion with the police. It's it's all starting to go wrong. Yeah. Now, on the same night, a car had been left near Dudley Freightliner Terminal. Okay. Which again is an awful long way from Kidsgrove. Yeah. And it's not that close to Highley. No. <laughs> and a security guard there called Gerald Smith had been shot in the back six times. Oh, my God. But he survived. Oh, well, okay. okay that's good. Well, for the time being. Right. <laughs> like, um, he got shot. Oh, no, but he survived. Oh, good. But not for, oh. <laughs> like, that was a real roller coaster of a sentence. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, he did die, but it was quite a lot, lot afterwards. It was more okay. than a year and a day after the shooting. Oh, wow, okay. And that is significant because if, if someone dies a year and a day after um, an act of violence, then the perpetrator can't be accused of murder. No way, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, that's a... Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a rule. That's a law. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so he did die, but he wasn't actually included in the list of murders that mm. Donald Nielsen actually carried out. Because near this Freightliner terminal in in Dudley was the car and in the car were cassette was a cassette tape with Leslie Whittle's voice on it. Okay. Asking her relatives to cooperate with the kidnap. Uh, and her slippers were there and a roll of plastic tape. Okay. And all of these things link back to Nielsen for the kidnapping. Yeah. 
Now, there was a news blackout on all of this while they were trying to find Leslie. To all intents and purposes, they thought she was still alive. They just hadn't managed to make this ransom drop yet. On the 10th of February 1975, the news blackout was lifted. And on March the 5th, Chief Superintendent Booth and Ronald Whittle appeared together, both on national and local television, to make an appeal. Now, the next day, a headmaster at a local school to Kidsgrove, to Bathful Park, told the police that a pupil had brought him a piece of dymo tape that read, drop suitcase into hole. Okay. And subsequently, other pupils had found a torch wedged in the grills of what was a ventilation shaft. So this, this reservoir had all these drainage tunnels and things which had inspection shafts but okay. also ventilation shafts which had like veins in it to, right, okay. to let the air in and out and a torch had been wedged in there yeah the boys who found the torch in Bathwell park had given it to the headmaster several weeks before but no one had realized the significance of this until they'd seen this television uh, broadcast which okay. had only got out after the news blackout Oh, no. <laughs> so if there hadn't have been a news blackout, then maybe people yeah. would have been able to find Yeah. So that was on the 5th of March okay. where, where this happened. And the next That's day... That's going off like two months later. Yeah, it's two months. Well, yeah, two months, pretty much. The next day, police started a second thorough search of Bathpool Park, starting with this ventilation shaft. Within the ventilation shaft, the detective found a dymo tape machine and a roll of dymo tape. Ah, uh, okay. The inspection of another shaft revealed nothing. But the third shaft, which was the deepest of the three, had once been a shaft for Nelson's coal mine and was uncapped. And as a result of it being part of a mining system, albeit an old one, it had to have um inspections to make sure there weren't any dangerous gases before anyone could go into it. Right. So it was too late in the day to organise that. So it was the next day on Friday, the 7th of March, 1975, after the gas tests had been done, that they actually opened up this shaft and went down into it. And it was accessed by a vertical ladder. You can imagine it is literally just a concrete vertical tube with a metal ladder down (sighs) one side of it. But it's got various landing stages. Right, okay. Yeah. So this ladder went down 22 feet, or 6.7 metres, to the first landing. Oh, my God. (laughs) Where a broken police torch was found from the previous day's sort of investigation. Somehow or other, this torch had fallen down the shelf here. The next ladder went down another 45 feet, or 14 (laughs) metres, it's a very deep shaft. It's a, yeah. <laughs> It'd be full of water, I thought. Anyway, um, down onto a second landing where a cassette tape recorder was found. And then there was a further 54 feet, Oof. 16 metres, down onto a third landing, down. Okay. On which the police found a rolled up sleeping bag that would be acting as a pillow and a yellow foam mattress and a survival blanket. <gasps> and underneath that, Ooh. Leslie Whittle's body was found hanging oh, no. from a steel wire round her neck. Oh, no. And she was dangling and her feet were just seven inches from the very bottom of the shaft. No. Oh. oh, that's horrible. Yeah. Further investigations around the third shaft and the floor found three inch strips of elastoplast sticky plaster which had been used as a blindfold a pair of brown size seven trainers more dymo tape cassette tape microphone and a lead a thermos flask blue trousers a reporter's notepad <laughs> oh my god um, really set up home down there yeah well out of all the items recovered from the three shafts all the items were forensically inspected, but there was only one partial fingerprint, which was on the reporter's notepad. Oh, wow, okay. What they believe happened is on the night that she was abducted, Nielsen drove Leslie to Bathpool Park in Kidsgrove, Mm -hmm. where he forced her down the drainage shaft. Right. 
next to the reservoir. Inside the shaft, he placed a hood over her head, removed the dressing gown, which, according to this report, left her naked. Now, whether she really was or not, I don't yeah. know. Um, Cold. But she probably wouldn't have had much on, even no. if she got underwear or something. It would have been absolutely freezing. Yeah. And that's when he tethered her to the side of the shaft presumably it's all those layers down with this wire noose right for whatever reason she could not get out of that and he had left her a mattress and a sleeping bag okay so presumably he was intending just to hide her there yeah Uh, and then once he got his fifty thousand pounds she would have been released but clearly that didn't happen no because as we just heard two months later she was found dead do they know how long has she been dead for well this is a very good point at the beginning i I, well early on i referred to this as leslie whittle's death Death. rather than murder because it's not clear whether he intended to kill her or not is this some thought that she might have committed suicide? Well, not committed suicide, but maybe accidentally. If she'd right, fallen okay. off this ledge or whatever, yeah. she would have fallen off or, um, yeah, whatever. And, 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 right, well, okay. yeah. So uh, having said that, it is widely believed that Nielsen pushed Whittle, Leslie Whittle, off the ledge right, okay. in the drainage shaft, strangling her. Um, but another scenario is that Nielsen was not present when Whittle died and that he fled on the night of the failed ransom collection without returning to the shaft ever. Right, okay. Believing the police were closing in on him, leaving Leslie alive in the dark for a considerable time. Because, yeah, it would have been pitch black down there. Absolutely, absolutely in the absolutely house. Horrific. Yeah. Oh, my God. Before she actually fell to her death. Now, they, post- can't been, so this, they can't have been very big landings either no. so in the pitch black in that really tight yeah. yeah yeah it, it, it must have been absolutely terrifying freezing cold pitch yeah. black uh, how many Probably feet rats feet and all sorts if it's a reservoir uh, yeah god knows what was going on down there um <sighs> a post-mortem examination showed that leslie had not died from strangulation but had actually okay. died instantly from vagal inhibition Now, this is where the shock of the fall had caused her heart to stop from beating. And this, in turn, would have been induced by high blood pressure in her carotid artery caused by the constrictive wire loop around her neck, triggering her brain via the vagus nerve. And the brain's response to this urgent signal for reduction in artery pressure would be to radically slow down the heart. Oh, my God. And when that failed, her heart stopped altogether. Jeez. So it's a, <laughs> so it's a complex thing. Yeah. Yeah. So whether she was pushed or whether she fell, that, that's the issue, I think, here. Mm. Um, yeah. It doesn't really matter. Either way, she died because of that explanation yeah. rather than being and- strangled. But she was just left dangling for two months. Oh. And because well, she was put in that situation, like she wouldn't have died of that thing if she hadn't been kidnapped by him and yeah, put exactly. in So yeah. he probably was thought well, he was responsible for her death. He was responsible he? for her death. Was it murder? Was it mm. manslaughter? Uh I don't know. But yeah, it was clearly brought about by him, wasn't it? Yeah. Leslie was found to weigh only seven stone when she was found. Wow, okay. Um she was quite short anyway she was only just about five foot and quite slight but whether seven stone was a bit light for her i don't know um her stomach and intestines were completely empty um when they found her so she must have been there for quite a long time before she died so she must have been alive down there for some time which would imply to me (laughs) that she must have died a few days after all this had happened. So either he went back and pushed her off the ledge or she genuinely did fall. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I never know. So Nielsen was now the UK's most wanted man. And Mm -hmm. it was, it wasn't until December, 1975. So getting on for a year later 
after the kidnap of, of Leslie Whittle, um, that two police officers in a in a patrol car near Mansfield, Nottinghamshire, saw a small wiry man passing by who was carrying a hold hall. Um, and as he passed the police car, he averted his face, which drew the policeman's attention to okay, him. Okay, <laughs> Um, as a matter of routine, they called him over to question him, and the man said he was on his way home from work. But then he produced a sawn-off shotgun from his holder, <laughs> as you do when you're as you do everywhere, yeah. And he ordered one of the policemen into the back of the car. The policeman started to get out of the door to get into the back, and he said, oh, "No, no, none of that. You can jump over the back seat." So there was a policeman in the back seat. I don't know why he didn't get out the back door? I don't know. Um, and uh, Nielsen got into the passenger seat and told oh. the other policeman to drive at gunpoint. Oh and God. he wanted them to drive to Rainworth, which is about six miles away. And they told, and he told them not to look at him. They were driving along and they came to a junction and the policeman said to Nielsen, which way now, left or right? And as he was doing that, he turned the steering wheel violently one way and then he steered it violently the other way, which got Nielsen off guard. And the policeman at the back was able to grab the gun off him, which actually did go off, injuring one of the policeman's hands. Um, but that was okay. This all happened outside a fish and chip shop. Oh, my God. <laughs> and um, at the Junction Chip Shop in Rainworth, Two men who were standing in the queue outside the chip shop ran to the help of the policeman. Oh, my where they, God. Where the policeman and these two men managed to overpower Nielsen. One of the passers-by at the chip shop subdued Nielsen by, with a strong blow to his neck. Oh, my God. Uh, before one of the others, the other, the other man grabbed his wrist, wrists and held him uh, while the policeman managed to get handcuffs on him. And uh, they managed to sort of tie him with handcuffs and things to some iron railings at the side of a bus stop. Oh, my God. Yeah, and apparently he was quite badly beaten up. And there are some pictures of him after uh, after his arrest where his face is looking considerably uh, oh, no. battered. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, by this stage, they had identified that one of the fingerprints at the drainage shaft did match his fingerprint. He was interviewed at Kidsgrove Police Station, where he actually confessed. Oh, wow. OK. The trial took place in Oxford in 1976. During the trial, the defence made up all sorts of uh, claims that he was trying to look after her, that he'd brought her chicken soup, spaghetti, meatballs, brought her fish and chips, chicken legs, polo mints. Wow. But the prosecution contested all of these claims. Evidence showed that Nielsen had provided his victim with a sleeping bag designed to prevent hypothermia, mattress and survival blankets uh, and some bits and pieces, but uh, they obviously weren't enough to no. sustain her. Not in a shaft in no, January. In pitch black. Whether she had a torch or something, I don't. I don't know. But oh. as, as the evidence proves, she hadn't got any food inside her. She was emaciated. She was probably dehydrated as well. Yeah. Freezing cold. It must not have been a very pleasant end to the poor girl's life. No. And her body must have been under so much stress. Yeah. Anyway, no wonder that she had, her heart essentially just gave out on her when she had that shock yeah, because yeah, she must yeah, have been so it was, weak. It was the shock of falling, basically, that yeah. um, caused her heart to stop. So, In July 1976, Nielsen was convicted and he was given a life sentence. Good. He was also given a further 61 years to run concurrently for several other offences as part of the Leslie Whittle. Oh, wow, OK. The, as part of the Leslie Whittle kidnapping. Three weeks later, he went on trial again for the three murders of the post office uh, yeah. killings that had happened, well, the previous year, well, in 1974. 
And for yeah. those, he was given a, a life sentence for each. So that's an additional three life sentences. Wow. Four life sentences plus this additional 61 years he was given. Jesus. Uh, and the the murder or the death of the security guard at the Dudley Freightliner was never brought before him. That's crazy. Because, uh, as I say, we technically wasn't murder because of the year and a day rule. That seems really wrong. Yeah. Now, jump forward to 2008. Okay. So what's that, 32 years later? Yep. Donald Nielsen is now suffering from motor neurone disease in prison. Okay. Um, and he appealed against his conviction to see if he could get it commuted to a maximum of 30 years, which would have meant that he would have been eligible for release if they'd have granted that. But the judge ruled that he must never be released. Good. And he died in prison in December 2011. Wow, okay. So that is the story of Donald Nielsen or the Black Panther. Yeah. And the horrific tale of Leslie Whittle. And, yeah, we still see Whittle coaches around these parts. Well, today. (laughs) Yeah. That's crazy. I can't believe I've never heard that story. And ridiculous that yeah he did all that stuff to start with and then he just completely small time crook yeah yeah, that uh, escalated and escalated there's there's no real news of what happened to his wife or daughter although I think his daughter is well she would still be alive she's only 60 60, yeah yes so uh, yeah there was a film made almost immediately afterwards 1977 oh wow okay they made a film about it but um Sort of people in the areas around Highley and Kidsgrove and the places that were involved were so outraged by it that uh, local authorities banned it from being shown. Okay, yeah, fair. But apparently it has relatively recently gone on to DVD and it's just called The Black Panther. Is it on Netflix? I don't know if it's on Netflix, but it might be, I suppose. But it, it could be interesting from a historical point of view now. I mean, we're 40-something yeah. years on now, aren't we? 46 yeah, 40s, years on. Yeah. 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 That whole thing about them, like, trying to get, like, meet him to get him the ransom and yeah. it not working out is um, a bit stressful. <laughs> it is true. Yeah. So there was no phone call the first night to the Swan Shopping Centre. Uh, he didn't make it to the phone box to pick up the next note. He didn't, when he did finally get the note, he missed the flashing torch business. Mm-hmm. Quite how that all fitted in with the, what the timeline was with that and the business at the Dudley Freightliner, I'm not entirely sure. No. Maybe that was earlier on in the evening and he hot-footed it up to Kids Grow from Dudley. Yeah. <laughs> Um, got, the tra- got the train. <laughs> it was quite interesting looking up these places on the map. <laughs> yeah. It's quite a trip around the UK. Great story. Thanks for sharing. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. Local, it is local. local yeah, with the, one of the post offices being in Langley. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harrogate, that's not far from no, your neck of the woods now, yeah. isn't it? So, it uh, is, yeah. A true Yorkshire and West Midlands story. Yeah, it is. <laughs> It's just it's pretty audacious, isn't it, to think, oh, there's this money thing going on. I'm going to go and find this family yeah. really far away from where I am and see if I can nick one yeah. of them to get some of the yeah. money. That's basically all it was. He'd, he'd read about this family's dispute over these, in those days, ridiculous amounts of money. Yeah. And he just saw it as a how he but, found out where they lived. I mean, yeah. it'd be one thing. I don't know how just he did is, that. Yeah, it's ridiculous that he would think that that was an okay thing to do. But yeah. He is a criminal, so. Yeah, he just got uh, more and more involved in criminal activity to try mm-hmm. and get money. Yeah. I did see somewhere that he's always been regarded as not a very interesting serial killer. Okay. When compared to his almost namesake, Dennis Nielsen, yeah. who, uh, you know, was chopping was up putting people down and, the drains. Yeah. <laughs> and stuff like that, just sort of shooting a few sub postmasters and, and things. So it was like cause... a bit of an accidental serial killer. Like, yeah, uh, people kind of got in his way when he was trying to yeah. steal stuff. So he killed them oh, just to get caught. him out of the way. Yeah. They just kind of got 
them dying was just a kind of byproduct of what he was trying to do. Like he was trying to get money. He wasn't trying to kill her. And the fact that maybe he didn't intend to kill whoever it was that he was going to take from the Whittle family, uh, that he was going to sort of keep them somewhere. Because if if his intention was to kill him, he would have done it sooner. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, but you would think that if he was just going to keep her hostage, he'd have put her somewhere slightly less dangerous, maybe? Somewhere that he could actually look after her so that when he gave her back, she was safe. Because that seems quite dangerous to attach her by her neck to a a shaft on a wire. Yeah. Like, surely he could have done, like, her wrist or something if he wanted to attack, like, keep her down there. Yeah. There's a lot of things that point towards he was a bungler i think yeah he seemed to bungle everything but he planned it so meticulously (laughs) yeah maybe he didn't think of all the yeah what ifs (laughs) yeah he was a bungler and there was some bungles on the part of the police and things as well allegedly but he was brought to justice eventually and uh, served the rest of his days in prison at least he didn't get released after a stupidly no, short amount of time, like so many people that we've talked about did. So yeah, yeah, that's that is true. Well, thank you. No, you're Great welcome. Story. Piece of uh, British crime history there. Yeah. If you enjoyed listening to that story or would like to know more about it, um, well, there's tons about Leslie Whittle and uh, Donald Nielsen on the internet. You won't, have any, you won't have any difficulty finding <laughs> stuff, that's for sure. Uh, there's all sorts of pictures. I will be putting some photos onto Instagram where you'll be able to find us at... Dad and Daughter Do Death. I'll try and get them onto Facebook as well. <laughs> Dad and Daughter Do Death. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions or just like to chat to us, you can always email us at... Dad and Daughter Do Death at gmail.com. And we and, look forward to hearing from you. Yes, you can always, if you enjoy listening to us, you can rate us, you can leave us a review, um, you can subscribe and you can download our podcast if you enjoy listening. Um, please do download it onto your device. That's how more people get to find out about it. So, um, yeah. Tell your friends and family. Tell your friends and family. And don't forget, if you would like some exclusive merchandise from Dad and Daughter Do Death, do get in touch with us on those uh, aforementioned ways so we can send you something in the post did you get our first batch of uh, merch out to people yeah first batch of merch is out um if people sent me addresses so yes first batch is out so don't miss your opportunity to get this exclusive first edition of merchandise <laughs> but uh don't lie awake at night with excitement waiting for it. We should have we should have autographed them before we sent them out. Maybe before the next <laughs> one. Maybe maybe we could autograph some at the weekend. Sign some. Yeah, sign, like, sign merch. If you like uh, some signed merch, yeah. <laughs> let us know. So. Yeah. Well, on that then, join us next time when once again, Dad. And daughter, do death.